You are now listening to the August 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and It's Time to Pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. Welcome to Walking Our Talk. Hi, Polly. Hi, Alan. Polly Heller, my wife of, uh, I think it's 44 Four. years, yes. And we are going to be, we've been talking about the Marital Mystery Tour, a book that we have that you can get on our website, walkandtalk.org. And also you can get the Audible copy off of Amazon. We've been talking about uh, communication and all kinds of things, but the we started with comradeship. You need to be friends before your lovers. And then we went to commitment. There are no back doors in our relationship. We talked about communication and closing the loop and making sure what I say is what you get and that we are listening to each other. And then we talked about completeness, the physical, emotional, spiritual relationship and the oneness that God wants. But we spent a lot of time on the physical. And now we're coming into the home stretch, Polly, uh, talking about consecration. And in the book, you wanted to read something. That's right, Alan. When we first introduced the Marital Mystery Tour, we talked about how this couple gets invited by an angelic sort of mystery man named Mr. Michaels to go on a tour of an estate that they have inherited. And at this very beginning of the book, they're just sort of lackadaisical, I would say, in their relationship with each other. They're, they've been married for a number of years. And you would say they're too just, comfortable? Yeah, well, they just sort of are taking each other for granted. And now they've How could been, that happen, Polly? <laughs> they've been going through this beautiful estate with uh, their mysterious host, Mr. Michaels, who has shown them the great riches that their marriage contains mm. for them. And now it's culminating in this uh, final chapter called Holy Matrimony. And I'd like to do something a little different this time and read this portion out of the book because it is it was probably the most fun for me to write, hmm. and it was the most um, inspirational to me as I brought this couple into the holiest aspect of what their marriage union is and about. And you tell, I mean, we don't use the word consecration very often in our cultures, because consecration simply means to be separate, to separate out, that something is useful for a certain purpose. That's right. And I think our world system has squeezed us into its mold, thinking we can just call marriage whatever we want. We can call our sex whatever we want. I, if I don't feel like a man today, I can be a woman and I can just go in. I mean, our world is just going bananas uh, in terms of this area. And we want to hold up marriage as something 
that is highly valued by God, and there's a purpose beyond just making me happy. So many people, when I deal with premarital counseling, they, they go, well, they just make me so happy, and I'm just so, and that's wonderful, but that's not the primary reasons. So feel free. Okay. Well, the structure of our book is that we tell this story first from the lady's perspective and then from the the man's perspective. And then we have a little teaching or explanation of of what it means um, in terms of, in this case, consecration and this whole idea that our marriages are set apart for God's holy purpose. So let me just jump in. Ladies first. You hear Mr. Michael's now familiar tap, tap, tap on the cottage's front door just as you finish reapplying your lipstick. Perfect timing. In the snuggly afterglow of your lovemaking, you'd almost forgotten your host was waiting outside. But then your husband had brushed the hair off your face, kissed you on the forehead, and tenderly whispered, That was terrific. You totally satisfy my needs. But now I'm starved. Let's go see if we can find something to eat around here. You'd smiled, kissed him on the tip of his nose, and headed for the bathroom. You slipped the lipstick back into your purse, about to hurry to answer the door, remembering how your day had begun with your host's knock and your frantic dash out to his limousine. But your husband touches your elbow and says, Hey, no need to rush, hon. I'm ready, too. Let's go together. He reaches the door in a couple of long strides, pulls it open, and with a flourish makes a gallant, musketeer-like bow. After you, milady. You grin, pretending to gather up a long, full skirt and sweep past him through the doorway, but he catches you by the waist and waltzes you out the door. Outside, Mr. Michaels awaits you, still formal, yet his eyes sparkle with the look of a proud grandparent watching his grandchildren at play. You stop in your tracks and stare at him. He's standing on what looks like a cloud hovering about six inches off the ground. He reaches out a hand to help you step up, and your husband joins you without a word. You're riding on a cloud. Without any apparent effort or movement on Mr. Michael's part, the cloud glides past the buildings, gardens, hills, and meadows of your estate. Sometimes it barely skims the ground, then it soars high over wooded mountaintops. With your arms around your husband's waist and his encircling your shoulders, it never even enters your mind to be afraid. You simply exist, happy to share each glorious moment of the ride with him. The cloud lands and dissipates. You're standing in front of a one-room building that appears to be fashioned from chiseled glass or ice or perhaps a gemstone. Whatever it is, it glows in the lowering sun's nearly horizontal rays. Within, a linen-covered table set with a gold wine goblet and a matching platter holding pieces of matzah, the unleavened bread used to celebrate the Jewish Passover, occupies the center of the room. A simple kneeling bench is the only other furniture. This is Consecration Chapel, Mr. Michaels says. You don't see a door. How are we supposed to, you begin, but Mr. Michaels puts a finger to his lips and hands your husband a palm-sized white book with gold letters that shoot out brilliant multicolored rays of light. If you almost 
almost shut your eyes, you can read the bright letters through your eyelashes. Holy, holy, holy. You reach out to touch the book, but Mr. Michael says sternly, No, your husband is the priest of your home. He must carry this responsibility for your marriage. Let him lead the way. A small but authoritative voice within you says, This is right. You nod and look expectantly at your husband. He too nods, as though he's been having his own conversation with Mr. Michaels and walks with you toward the chapel. Mr. Michaels says that, As I wash you in the water of the word, I'm sanctifying and loving you, he says. So here goes. He opens the book and reads, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Without moving, you and your husband are inside the chapel. Holding your hand, your husband leads you to the bench, and you both kneel. He breaks off a piece of unleavened bread and blesses it. You open your mouth, and he places the bread on your tongue. He picks up the goblet and holds it aloft in blessing. Through the chapel's clear ceiling, you can see the stars coming out. You feel your heart swell with emotion that has nowhere to go but through your tear ducts. The tears spill out and stream down your face. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful, safe, intimate place you have provided for me in this man, in this marriage. He is all the husband I've ever wanted and all I ever shall want for my life, you say. And you take the cup your husband hands you and drink deeply. So now, it's the man's point of view. And gentlemen, when you hear Mr. Michaels tap, tap, tap on the door, you're glad you gave your wife plenty of notice to get herself up and ready. That was some of the most satisfying sex you've had in a long time, but now you're feeling hungry. I wonder if Mr. Michaels has a pizza with him. You smile at the thought of your dignified host wielding a pizza box and standing outside by a pickup truck with a magnetic pizza sign attached to the roof. But the sight that greets you when you dance your wife out the door drives all thoughts of pizza from your mind. Is that honestly a cloud he's standing on? By this time, you've ceased looking for gimmickry in his doings. This is a genuine cloud. It has no motor, no steering mechanism, not even a floor. Yet when Mr. Michaels helps your wife up onto it, she doesn't fall through. You step in beside her, amazed to be standing firmly on nothing. <laughs> what can you say? This guy's the real deal. The cloud travels smoothly through the air, apparently directed solely by Mr. Michael's will. With an arm around your wife's shoulders, you decide to enjoy the moment with her. Seeing the grounds of your beautiful estate and all their grandeur fills you with awe. Why did I not know sooner that all this was mine, you wonder, especially this terrific woman? I've really taken her for granted. And you hold her close. You stand in front of a one-room, transparent building glowing in the setting sun's golden light. You've always liked the quality of light at this time of day, regarding with pleasure the halo effect playing in your wife's hair. 
This is Consecration Chapel, Mr. Michael says, and you realize the nature of this building. You feel a sudden urge to take off your shoes as if you're tracking mud onto brand new carpet. You realize Mr. Michaels is watching you. He's smiling. His lips don't move, but you hear him say, yes. This is holy ground, and not only this building. Your entire estate is holy, consecrated, set apart for just the two of you, and to fulfill God's purposes for you. He sets a white leather book on the palm of your hand. Bright flashes of multicolored light inscribe holy, holy, holy on the cover. Though you see Mr. Michaels converse with your wife, you hear his voice tell you, You are the priest of your home. You sanctify your wife by washing her with the word of God. You provide the spiritual covering your wife and family need. You each have your own personal relationship with God. But as far as your marriage is concerned, you are the leader. This is your responsibility, not hers. You lead the way. You know this is right. You nod yes. With the holy book in one hand and your wife's hand in the other, you walk toward the chapel, but see it doesn't have a door. What to do? Read from the book, says Mr. Michael's voice inside your head. It's the key to consecration chapel. Mr. Michael says that I wash you in the water of the word. I'm sanctifying and loving you, you tell your wife. So here goes. The book falls open and you read John 14:6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The wall that was in front of you is now behind you and you recognize both the setting and what you must do. Taking your wife's hand, you draw her toward a low cloth-covered table set for communion. Together you kneel on the bench by the table and you pick up a piece of matzah from the gold plate. The words Lo, this is the bread of affliction. Run through your mind, along with images of a slaughtered lamb tied to a large stone table and a bleeding naked man hanging on a rough-hewn cross. In heartfelt response, you call out, Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son, the promised Messiah, Jesus, to die in our place. We are so grateful. And you break off a piece of the brittle, unleavened bread and place it in your wife's mouth before partaking of what remains. You look into the blood-red wine filling the gold goblet. Take and drink. This is my blood. But it's not Mr. Michael's voice you hear. It's the voice of infinite love incarnate. You don't know how you know this, but you do. With clasped hands, you raise the goblet upward along with your heart, your devotion, your destiny. The sky outside is darkening, but you feel your soul filling with light. Yes, this is right. You are priest of your home and protector of this woman by your side. You swear you will never allow anything to come between you. She belongs to you, you belong to her, and you both belong to God. You drink from the cup and hand it to your wife. Well, we could listen to Polly Reed all day, couldn't we? <laughs> that's, uh, that's really exciting. So what, what is the purpose of that particular passage? What, are, what is it you're trying to get at there? 
Because certainly not every experience is as daunting as that. Or, But there are times where all of us get the picture of what God's plan was for not just our marriage. There's always a bigger story that we are a part of, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing, uh, Alan. In Ephesians, it says the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And I think in so many places and in so much misapplication of the scripture, uh, over the years, we've come to interpret that as the, the husband boss. is the boss. Right. He can tell his wife what to do, and she's supposed to just submit and do whatever the it adornment. is that he says. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. But I'm seeing it, I'm envisioning it in this passage that we just read um, as in their spiritual life, in the oneness of their marriage, as a body that is created of the two, two, becoming, the two one. becoming one, the husband is the head and the covering of the wife and the the one who initiates and leads the two of them spiritually. And I can see in our marriage as you have performed that role and that function in our relationship that I have felt such a sense of safety and security, because I know that you lead me into the presence of God, that you yourself go daily into the presence of God, and you bring our relationship before the Lord, and you take that um, that role as the head and priest of our home very spiritually, and uh, very spiritually, very seriously, and that gives me a great deal of confidence in you. So, but that doesn't mean you can't pray or initiate spiritual relationship in our relationship, right? Exactly, exactly. I can um, I can bring things up, and I certainly do. There are times when I, when I think that you're doing something wrong, or I think that there are, are times when I'm... Are you kidding me? When, you when think I'm, I'm doing something wrong? Well, there are times I think you might be heading in the, right, in the in wrong, wrong direction. direction. Uh-huh. And so, but as I pray about those things, I can trust that the Lord is going to speak to you about them, that he will add his weight to my concerns and give you the direction that you need to go in for the two of us. So the things that we want to get across in terms of consecration are the fact that our marriage is set apart by God to represent Christ and his church, the bride and the groom. And if I'm living in a relationship, I was just talking with a couple the other day, in the counseling room about the fact that if vertically you are right with God and then we talk together horizontally, there should be unity. And what the Bible says is where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's unity. And God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And he made us to be have one faith, one baptism. He's one God and Father of us all. And his goal is oneness and unity within our marriage. And so we think it's really important to remember the bigger picture of our marriage as Christ and the church and the whole Ephesians 5 passage, as well as 
realizing that we are set apart for one another. You are to satisfy needs that only you can meet in me and vice versa. Not that uh, you can meet all my needs. God is the one that I have to look to for that. So we're just about out of time, and we're going to follow this up with next week with our uh, next podcast, Comradeship 2. Consecration. Consecration 2, rather. And we're looking forward to just talking practically, how does this work, and um, talking about how do we do this, not just the concept that we do need to know we are consecrated unto God, uh, and our marriage is not only for Him, but also to be an example to the world. So we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, Polly, for that reading. That was great. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, God is Quietly at Work, based on Mark 4.21 through 24. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're continuing a verse-by-verse study through this amazing gospel, this active gospel These are actually Peter's messages that Mark, his personal assistant, heard over and over and over, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I'm sure with Peter's help, he put together this life of Jesus, which is somewhat abbreviated when you compare it to like Matthew and Luke for sure, but it is action-packed, it's swift, and uh, if you have some kind of a t- attention disorder, Mark's the gospel for you. It's short for one thing, all right? So Jesus is teaching in parables now. He says, I think it's in verse 33, that now he, it says he is teaching in parables, containing the truth there. Some people are understanding it, other people aren't, and that's part of the purpose. Jesus is saying, look, if you're really seeking truth, then you're going to seek to understand, and so he's explained the parables to his disciples, and a parable literally, the word in Greek means to compare one thing with another, to set one thing next to another thing, and it helps explain something. I tend to be, I think I'm a great visual learner, and I can learn by hearing. Reading some, sometimes I have a hard time you know, with direct recall reading. I know some people that are, they have direct recall whenever they read, which is just, you know, terrible. Can you imagine that? Direct recall, photographic memory. So, but me, I need pictures. It really helps me if I've got an illustration. How many of you learn like that? You're kind of that way. It's helpful to see. So, 
Jesus was a great teacher, understanding that in especially that day, people did not, weren't able to read. People would have to read for them. You've heard of the scribes, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were writers. And you would hire them to write letters for you and to read letters for you and because people were illiterate for the most part. And so you'd have to memorize things or see things. So Jesus was an amazing teacher because he met the need of the crowd. So he would be sitting out teaching in a field with thousands of people around and he would say, you don't have to worry, God's going to take care of you. Consider the birds, you see these birds of the air. And believe me, if you sit in the fields in, around the Sea of Galilee, there's birds everywhere. He says, Consider, look at them. They don't worry about what they're going to you know, wear. They don't worry about their food. Your Father in heaven takes care of them. In fact, if one of them dies, he takes note of that. Pictures help me learn. I can hang on to a picture long after I forgot where something might have been found in a book. Jesus packaged truth in these pictures. And then he would unpackage them to some of times to his disciples very clearly. So Mark records four parables here in chapter 4, and they kind of go in a natural order when you look at them. I'm going to mention all four, but we're only going to stay in one of them and dive in and unpack one. But the first parable, and that was about the soil. That was like verses 1 through 20. The soil was talking about how the word is received and how people respond to the word, right? Hard soil, rocky soil, weedy soil, and then there was good soil. That's like people's lives when it comes to how they respond to the word of God. So it talks about who true believers are. The second parable was about the lamp. And uh, verses 21, look at 21, 22, 23. I'm just going to read it. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen up, he's saying. So this is a parable about a, a lamp. And this is talking about the believer's responsibility. What's our responsibility? If he's talking about a lamp, what is a lamp supposed to do? It's supposed to light shine, right? A lamp shines. Now, in the ancient world, the houses were really dark. There might have only been a couple of windows way up high. When you go to Israel with me, come on, you're going to see some of these houses that have been recreated. So you always had to have a lamp burning in the house. Now it says, if a lamp is on a stand, it would, don't think of a stand like we put it on a pole or something. The lamp stand was a little niche in the wall. And uh, think of where you put, like in your shower, your bath, where you put the soap, right? So that was in the wall, and lamps would be uh, set there, and that, their job was to be in place and shine. They had their place. That's where that lamp belonged. And that lamp, in its place, was to do its job and shine. I understand what Jesus says without having to say much more, right? I have a place. I've been saved, and Jesus wants me to shine in my place. I don't have to be in your place. Where the Lord has me, 
there on my stand, I'm supposed to shine. Our purpose is to shine for Jesus. Somebody say amen. Amen. Shine for the Lord. And the fuel is the Holy Spirit. He's the oil in our lamps. Lord, keep me burning and be an illumination to the world. The third parable is the parable about the seed. And we're going to come back and we're going to look at that in depth in a minute. And so that's a parable about how the kingdom of God is going to work in the world and in our lives. So that's a parable of the seed. We'll come back. So let's go back to parable three and let's read about it in verses 26 through 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So you see this order. First of all, there's scattering. or What's the other word for scattering seed? Sowing. So first there's a sowing. Then there is the resting. You know, there's a seed resting in the field, although it's not really resting. And then the farmer rests. And then there's the harvest. He goes out and he harvests. And so there is a pattern here in our lives of how the Word of God works in our lives, how the Word of God works in other people's lives that we share the gospel with, and how the Word of God works in this world. Okay? So first of all, I want us to think about how does the Word of God work in this world? Well... The word is shared, and as the word goes out, we can't make it do its work. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Some of us, that is a revelation. We do forget that sometimes. We are not the convictor. We're not the convincer. We're not the converter. That is his job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. What is our job? Our job is to sow the word, to scatter the seed, to not read about scatterers, to not watch programs about effective scatterers, to not pay people to scatter for us. Our job is to take the word and to get it out there. And so when we do in the world, there becomes a silent work of God that we don't always see. And I think this is one of Jesus' big points here is in this parable is that the seed there is an invisible work that is done and you just have to wait for it to happen you cannot be impatient you can't help it along you have to wait on God to do his work is that pretty clear to you the farmer can't hurry things up the farmer has to have faith in the process And that's what I'm going to ask you to do, is have faith in the process that God is doing through his word in the world. I know, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbag. A lot of it, but God's still working, right? He's still working. Is the kingdom of God here? Don't answer that question. It's a trick question. I say I'll never ask you a trick question unless I tell you. So this is a trick question. Has the kingdom of God come to this earth? Trick question. If you say yes and no, you got the answer right. Yes, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come. 
But the kingdom of God hasn't come. What do you mean? Jesus has come. And Jesus was anointed as king of the kingdom of God. Amen? But he hasn't been crowned king on this earth yet, right? So he has a spiritual kingdom on earth, invisible, that's for real, but the day is going to come when he is going to establish that spiritual kingdom and it will be a literal, seen kingdom and he will be crowned king of kings and lord of lords, amen? So it's like that, the field right now, we're in the field time where is there anything happening? Well, let's see a little promise there. Look, you know, there's little blades coming up. Yeah, it looks promising. Or some of the fields look riper than others. Believe me, God's work is going on in the world. Don't be discouraged. See, what I think some of these parables Jesus gives is to encourage his disciples. He gives that first parable about the soil to encourage them because he wants them to know, hey, guys, not everybody that you share the word with is going to receive it. Some would be hard soil, some would be rocky, some would be weedy. But there's some who receive it, and a lot happens. So don't be discouraged if only one out of four listens to what you have to say and receives what you have to say in their fruit. So that was encouraging. Now I believe he's saying, look, don't be discouraged if you plant some seeds and you don't see anything happen for a long time. Just continue on with your life. Remember it says, he sleeps and he awakes. You know, just keep on with your life. Do your work, but trust me that I'm doing mine. Does that make sense? Now, I want to apply this in another way, and that would be applying it to our lives. This is a secondary application. Can I believe that if the word of God is sown into my life, that the word of God is doing a work in me even if I don't see that process. Yes, you can believe that. You've prayed, God, please, you know, do this in my life. I don't know what your thing is. I know what maybe your struggle is or increase my faith. Give me victory over sin. Maybe you've shared the gospel with friends, family members. There's nothing more that gives us more care than knowing loved ones aren't saved. When we have a reality of understand heaven and hell and that whole thing. I mean, we want our relatives saved, and we've shared, and we've shared, and we don't see any fruit of that. And it might be your husband, your wife, your kids, parents, more extended relatives, even people you work with that you love. So there is this anxiety, maybe. God, is your word doing anything? I guess the word of God isn't working. Put the brakes on that thought for a minute. And let's remember the parable. Maybe you've done what you're supposed to do, and now you just go on with life. Sleep and rising, sleep and rising. You just go day by day doing faithfully what God's called you to do. And let's leave some of this work to God. Let's leave some of this work to God. Because there is a process that we don't see. It says in verse 27, the last part of verse 27, I think this is a key to the parable the seed sprouts and grows, and these next four words are the key. He knows not what? How? How does this work? I don't know, but it, it does happen. I mean, we go back, and he says, first the blade, then the ear. The earth produces by itself. I don't know how it works, but I'll tell you what the Greek is. 
The Greek word where it says the seed produces by itself is the word that we get automatic from. There is an automatic process that happens as the word is working in somebody's life. It automatically starts doing something in someone's life. We can trust the word to do that. It seems like it can take a long time. And maybe it is some seed takes longer to germinate, longer to absorb the moisture, I don't know, than others. But we can trust God who at the proper time sows and reaps. God holds the secret of life. God is in control. Even while we rest, there's growth. Trust God and trust the power of God to work. Because the power of God works. The power of God's word is working in you right now. Because God's word is the seed. Do you believe that? And let me tell you about what the seed of God's word can do. Let's open up our Bibles and want us to go to 1 Peter. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, which is way to the right, of course, from the Gospel of Mark. 1 Peter. You'll go through the big book of Hebrews. You can't miss it. Next door is 1 Peter. James, 1 Peter. I want us to go to chapter 1, and I want us to look at something here. We're going to look at our life, the eternal life that we have. And Peter just bursts into praise. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, what? Born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, I'm wanting you to pick up an important word here next in verse 4. To an inheritance that is, say it good and loud, imperishable. Imperishable, you did it. Undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, if you ever struggle with assurance of your salvation, this passage and a few verses later should be the solution to that, okay? Let's read verse 23. You have been born again, not of what kind of seed? Perishable seed, but of what? Imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What is the seed? The word of God. He says that in the next verse, the word of God abides forever. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So assurance here, the seed that has been sown into your life is imperishable. The seed causes you to be born again. I have never seen anybody unborn I mean, I've seen a lot of people. Leslie and I were talking about how many people we've seen in our lives. I have seen lots of people. I've never seen somebody who says, I've been unborn. You're born and you're stuck with whatever you are, right? Some of us are, I wish I could be unborn. But you are born. When you are born again, what's the matter with some people? They think, well, I've lost my salvation. And I'm saying, what? You got unborn? What? Well, no, I'm not unborn. You didn't lose anything. Once you're born, it's done. Amen? Plus, the seed that was planted in you is imperishable. If something's imperishable, it means it cannot perish, right? Plus, added bonus, free of charge, you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and he says you are kept in heaven. 
Your inheritance, your imperishable salvation isn't even in your hands. It's kept where? In heaven. No way would I let you handle this. We're going to keep the oil lamp out of your hand, okay? We're going to put it out of reach. You know how little kids, if you don't want it spoiled when they're a certain age, you just have to keep it taller than their arm can reach. Amen? So God is saying, I'm going to put your salvation in heaven where you can't get to it and spoil it. More than that, not only can you not be unborn, this is an imperishable thing. This is out of your reach, but you are guarded. The next verse says in chapter 1, 5, it says, who by God's power, you by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. To be guarded, the ancient use of the word guarded meant to have a guard by you so you couldn't get away. Or a guard by you protecting you. The later use of this word, used around this time, when it was written, means to be put in a fort and like in a maximum security prison so you couldn't get out and no one could get to you. So what is Peter saying about our salvation? You can't be unborn. It's imperishable. It's in a safe place. Nothing can happen to it. And I can't get out. And nothing could take it from me. Somebody say amen. And I give God a hand clap there too. So this is the word of God. This is the work of the word of God. This is the work that's in the field. There's a process. It's automatic. God is doing this work. But there's more. Look at 1 Thessalonians to the left. 1 Thessalonians. Now, fortunately, and probably just by chance, all the books that start with T are together in the New Testament. If you come to one, somewhere in those books, you're going to find 1 Thessalonians. I want you to look at chapter 2 and get your eye to verse 13. The Thessalonian Christians are, I think they're some of my favorites because they were just these avid learners. They were so hungry for the word of God. Paul was only with them three weeks And yet they soaked up what he shared with them. They were very mature, very much quick studies, even though they were instantly persecuted for their faith. Okay, look at chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the what? Word of God. Let's stop right there. The book you hold in your hand, if you brought your Bible, the book you hold in your hand is not just another book. You understand that? I hold it in honor. We've taught our kids. I don't even, my grandma taught me and grandpa taught me, you don't sit anything on top of your Bible. Now, that's not law for anybody. But why? It's holy. It's holy. Nothing's holier than the Bible. You don't set it on the floor unless it's in a Bible case. You know, it's holy. Okay. So I was trained. This is a different book than any. But then as I grew up, I realized it's not just different, it's supernatural. It's not just different. It's different. It's the word of God. You want to hear from God? Don't listen for a voice. Read his word. Hear his word. Look at his word. The word of God. Now, The next piece that I want you to see is he says, you received the word of God 
And then the latter part says, which is at work in you believers. The word of God is at work in you. The word work, there's several words in Greek for work. The one Paul chooses here is energio. What does that sound like to you? Energy. The work, the word of God has energy in your life. It's energetic. It's doing something. It energizes you as well. Amen? So I want to serve the Lord more. I want to have more growth in my life. I want to do more for the Lord. I want more. Well, it's the word of God to do that. It will energize you. So as God's field and God's planting, I realize, you know what? In my field right now, the field of my life, there's an invisible work going on. I don't feel necessarily God's work doing a work in me. I don't like energy. I don't, sometimes you read the word and just, whoa, you feel encouraged, right? And you kind of like, wow, it energizes me, right? You can just, other times it's like, it is automatically doing something. Ah, I'll tell you, that's why when you're not in the word for an extended period of time, you run low on what? Energy. That's why we need the word. You hear? That's why we need the word. Now, in Hebrews chapter 4, which you'll go back to the right again, God says another thing about his word. It's a big book. You can't miss it. Hebrews chapter 4. I had to take Shakespeare in high school. Does anybody do that anymore? We had to read Shakespeare's plays, and then we had to go and we had watched them. And I say had to. For some people, that'd be a great privilege. To me, as a high schooler, it was like, are you kidding me? You think the King James Bible is hard. These are plays in King James English. The same, I mean, written the same time. So we're reading Othello, and then we're watching it. We're Macbeth, and then we're watching it. Dead, dry. And we'd have to write about what it meant. I couldn't even understand it, what it meant. The opposite of Shakespeare. The opposite. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is, say, Living and active. Just there, living and active. What other book in the world is living and active? None. Energio, working in your life. Automatically, quietly. Don't see its work. He knows not how. He doesn't understand the whole process, but he knows it works. The hard thing for a lot of us is the resting and waiting. God, when are you going to do this? When's my mom going to get saved? Lord, when's this going to happen in my life? Waiting on God's purpose and plan. Waiting for God to deliver. Waiting for, to hear God's voice or for God to use you. Waiting for God to heal you, to answer you. Waiting for God to make things right. Waiting for direction or waiting to know God's will. Hard to wait, but there is a process. You believe that? You're in a process right now. Process is going on. It's automatic. It's going on. There's energy in the word. No wonder you have no energy. You're not in the word. It's living and active. 
The Lord says, I just want to quote you. You can write down the passage. It's found in Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah chapter 55. Great, the whole chapter is over the top amazing. But Isaiah chapter 55, and I hang on to this word from God, and I think it's a great way to kind of conclude what, what we're talking about. Because it is a promise of God to do what he said in choosing the same idea of of seeds and God's automatic process. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, God very clearly underscores the fact that he will do what he says, that his word will do its work. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So God's using a parable here, using the hydrologic system. You know, there's evaporation, clouds, rain, going down into the ocean, just this cycle. He says, so... As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And all of us said what? Amen. Let's pray. We are grateful that we can trust your purpose and your plan. We thank you for the work of the word in this world, in our lives, in the lives of people that we love, that we care for. We will trust you, Lord, through the process of waiting While we're being tested during that time, we will trust you because your word shall go forth. It shall succeed. It shall accomplish what you send it out to do. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.
Coming up next is, It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. Today's first scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 17 and 22 through 25. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. 
for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The next scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The last scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12. through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. God's heavenly freedom is His amazing gift to us, our obedience to His word to love each other and produce the fruit of the Spirit is our love gift to God's heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for demonstrating your passionate and unfailing love for us by dying in our place while we are still sinners. Because of your sacrifice on the cross, we are a free people, free of penalties and punishments caused by all of our sins. Through your blood, we have heard this powerful declaration in your word. You are now righteous in my sight. Jesus, we are forever grateful to you for setting us completely free from the law of sin and death. Please help us not to view this wonderful freedom 
as an opportunity to satisfy our sinful nature, since we have nailed the passions and desires of our sinful nature to your cross and crucified them there. But fill us with your Holy Spirit and truth so we can continually live a life of freedom. God, you are love. We long to live your commandments as our act of worship and love offering to you. Love the Lord your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being, and with every thought that is within you. And you must love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. Show us every day what true love really looks like, so we can love each other by serving through a beautiful expression of your agape love with tender humility and quiet patience, always demonstrating gentleness and kindness toward one another, especially toward those who may try our patience. Show us how to faithfully guard the sweet harmony of the Holy Spirit among us in the bonds of peace. Let your mindset, truth, and love become our motivation in everything we do. Jesus, we long to follow your example of living a life of full surrender and humility in union with the Father and His perfect will. yielding freely and fully to the dynamic life and the power of the Holy Spirit so we can produce the fruit of the Spirit in our actions so visibly in beautiful expressions of divine love, joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action. a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. May everything we do be drenched with your beauty and magnificent glory. We long to give you constant praise of adoration and thanksgiving for what you have done for us. In Jesus' mighty name, We pray, Amen. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. Who yielded his life an atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give Him the glory, great things He hath done, hath done. Great things He hath taught us, great things He hath done, and 
sun, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done, hath done. And give him the glory, great things he We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.